Welcome to the Talking Recruitment Podcast from the REC. Every week we look at all the latest insights, perspectives and experiences from across our diverse recruitment industry. Hello everyone and welcome along to another episode of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. My name is Neil Carberry, the REC Chief Executive. I've got a great guest for you today, Richard Skellett. We're going to talk about the future of the labour market and engaging people in the kind of multi-career, multi-job world that we might be heading towards in the next few decades. Before I do that, a little update from REC Towers. We're just recovering from the REC Awards for 2022. They took place on the 24th of November. A fantastic night. Thank you to everyone who came along and made it that that good. Our awards are always the best night of the year and we had a great time. Um, when we were uh, reviewing uh, what we what we might say from the REC point of view um, at the awards, I took a really optimistic and upbeat tone about the future shape of the industry, based partially on the fact that I got a much more positive outlook on the economy uh, from clients when I was visiting the CBI conference earlier that week but also because we think that, that the kind of long-term changes that we're seeing towards a tight labour market, new skills demands, are actually overpowering uh, some of the trends that we see towards uh, demand dropping as the economy drops. So while we might be heading for a slower year in 2023 than we've had in 2022, we're certainly not downhearted about the outlook for the economy. Speaking of the scale and scope of the industry, do look out for our industry status report. That's coming out over uh, the next few days, just at the end of November into December, really clear definition of the contribution that the industry makes to the whole of the UK economy. And of course, the latest numbers on the number of temps and permanent placements made across the year um, by uh, by the uh, recruitment and staffing industry. Uh, really important to note, of course, that that's the data for the last full financial year banked by our members. So that's 20 uh 21 uh, into 2022 depending on when your year end is but a really clear uh underlining again of the value of recruitment and staffing to the british economy one final thing before uh before we turn to our discussion do check out the latest data from the rec our labor market tracker that's the job ads being placed uh tracked across the economy is out on the 2nd of december always worth looking at for a for an early heads up on trends as we go into those vital weeks in the run-up to christmas now let's turn to today's guest well, let's turn to our guest for today and a discussion about how industry's changing and how recruitment might need to change uh, to to meet that challenge. Really pleased to welcome Richard Skellett to the podcast. Richard's had a long career in IT, but more recently he's been heavily involved across a range of uh, businesses in advising firms on how they're changing to react to new technology and the impact of new technology on work. Among many things uh, Richard does is he's a sort of lifelong supporter of Hibernian Football Club, which I, as a, a supporter of the other team in Edinburgh, will not hold against you, Richard. Welcome to the uh, REC podcast. <laughs> Made me laugh. Neil there so uh, lovely to be here even with a jamble well you know the one thing we can agree is Edinburgh football beats all other football let's start I think you you have a unique senior business perspective on um on the market and how technology is changing how businesses do things and the pressure that that they're under and I think quite often 
we think about people almost last in that list. So start us off with kind of where do you see the pressure coming to on the kind of businesses that are recruiters clients from investors in the market going through the next five, 10 years? Great starting question, particularly um, with some of the events this month. You know, we've seen obviously with um, Twitter, uh, with 50% of its workforce being affected. Um, Stripe, another one, 14% of its workforce lift. Yet another 13% of its workforce redundant. And and we have Amazon, of course, who are now going off um, this month and saying they're not doing any new corporate hires. So it's um, we've got very difficult times at the moment, and um, and basically it kind of takes us into thinking about the 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 pressures that some of these CEOs have, isn't it, at the board level? And I, th- and I think one of the disconnects to begin with, um, Neil, is kind of looking at organisations, uh, you know, like investors, whether the, whether the investor is um, a large investor into one of the major Fortune or FTSE businesses, or indeed a small enterprise where the investors within the business. I think one of the challenges we've got, first of all, is to recognise that investors, it's a return on investment, firstly, both in terms of the capital that they invest and obviously the time that they invest. But one of the problems is, is that the business model to deliver um, that return is a cost and budget model. And, and that causes a problem um, in as much as that these things are distinctly different methods of working, essentially. But we've got a, a unique set of circumstances um, available to us today as a result of the developments of technology and platform where we've got ingredients that are available for us to change that old-fashioned target operating model. When you talk about changing that target operating model, what I'm hearing you is talking about the high fixed costs that uh, businesses might have traditionally to run to meet the the budget that they've set themselves. So if you look at you, you've just listed off actually some of the big tech players who maybe have hired in the same way as uh, the big industrial firms would have hired a, a century ago in order to to meet new new mm-hmm. targets. Do I yeah. do I take from that that the pressure on the where the C suites focused is really coming round to, well, could we achieve this this budget this income goal in a with a different structure for costs, a more efficient structure for costs. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and there's some different thoughts around this um, subject. You know, McKinsey, uh, as an example, talk about the decentralised autonomous organisation, the DAO, and, and they very eloquently describe it as a business that will have no overhead or very little overhead. And, and as a result of that, the expectation from the investors, so when you look at um, Silicon Valley as an example, you know, they've got an expectation that they'll be able to see profits in these kind of organisations, which would be sitting up at 80 and 90% profitability. But if we come to the kind of the basic nature of how a, an organisation structured is that what, one of, the, one of, the, one of the, the big major issue that most companies have is this thing around fixed costs. So if, you, so if you picture this as a journey, is it possible for us to move fixed cost to variable? And if we're able to move fixed cost to variable, can we go off and maybe have it linked in to see something like income or revenue? And in yeah. doing so, 
are we able to eliminate cost as a reoccurring symptom? And if we eliminate cost as a reoccurring symptom, how does that help us with the alignment with the investors who want a return on investment? And of course, one of the things about people, where do people sit? You know, people sit as a, unfortunately, as a fixed cost inside an organisation. We were, we were really saying that people, you know, lot of, you know, we say people are assets, but, but quite clearly in the sense of what's just happened with Twitter and Stripe and Lyft and Amazon as an example, the, the truth of the matter is that people aren't assets. There's a liability and there's an asset curve that needs to be managed mm-hmm. in regard to the people in the business. And, and we've got this other additional pressure also about thinking about um, being much more outcome focused in terms of what organisations and the people within those organisations to do. So, so are we able to think about how we might be begin to kind of blend some different ingredients together to go off and join up the dots and begin to change these target operating models into something that's fit for purpose for the future? So this is really interesting to me, I think, because... You know, some of this is about expectations and to a certain extent, um, investors can wish the world uh, with the kind of scale of GP that they that they're they're looking for into into being. But whether it's realistic and sustainable is another question. And I think there's a bit of test operate there. But equally, there's test operate on the employee side, isn't there? Because for your average uh, business. The first generation of this was core and periphery employment. It's who do we have on the staff as an open-ended employee and who do we have as a temp employee or an agency provided by one of our members or, or something like that. And it's always been that that trade-off between competitiveness and flexibility, which the company absolutely needs in order to be effective in a highly competitive market, especially if you're trading globally, um, and with that expectation from investors. And then on the other side, the kind of the social aspect of this. And I, I've always kind of had discussed this in the terms of businesses licensed to operate, you know, uh, capitalism and uh, in Western democratic societies exists because it has a license to operate from society. So there's a, an element of of whatever we do, having also to work for the workers. And it's something that our team at the REC has been thinking a lot about because current legislation, for instance, in the UK is designed for people who work in one way. They work like civil servants. They're open-ended full-time employment contracts that they plan on holding till, un, until retirement. And that's not how millions of people in the UK already work. And I know you're involved with lots of businesses who employ people in much more flexible ways. If you're a, a one of our members' clients, or indeed one of our members who are running complex businesses themselves, how should we think about that trade-off between the kind of reduction of the fixed cost side of employment and the flexibility and the competitiveness with the, the really important part of delivering security and social value in through employment, which, of course, is a big part of why employment exists in a society like Britain? It's such a wonderful question, uh, Neil, and some excellent observations there. And let, let's let's pick up on the first. Let, let's take one of the first things. You know, is is it po- is it possible, right, to go off and make money and do great things? 
So I, I firmly believe that the answer to that is a big firm yes. But when we look back into the past, what we find is is that um, I don't know if you ever heard of the. Um, funny enough, this this started in Scotland actually. It was called the ninety seven three club, and it goes back into um, when I first entered the workplace in the late seventies eighties, where ninety seven percent of the wealth of the world was um, owned by effectively three percent of the world's population, and 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 one of the sad things that's happened is is that the rich have gone off and got richer. And this 3% um, has actually um, gone down from 3 into the 2% point level. So, so I think the first thing is, is we've got to be thinking about, are we able to create more wealth creation opportunities for people? And, and if so, how do we begin to kind of go off and do that? And this, and this takes me thinking about the... The technology architectures that organisations now have in their business today are in an age of platform, as you mm-hmm. as you know. And, and and one of the things that we're very passionate about is that we talk a lot about a resource architecture model. Because if we've got a digital architecture or technology architecture model in our business, we need to be thinking about the resource architecture element of it. And if I just throw some ingredients out there just for a second, you know, what, what we've got is that we've got digital workers coming into the workforce. You know, when we bring a digital worker into our workforce, we're able to tell that digital worker or program that digital worker towards an outcome. Now, if we're able to say to a digital worker, here's the outcome that we want, why are we not able to do that with a human worker? And what we also have is that with, you know, with COVID is that we've seen the, you know, the rapid growth around work from home and hybrid. And that goes off and brings in this kind of work from anywhere. So suddenly we've, we've got a lot more ingredients available to us to think about how we can craft the solutions differently. So this speaks to an entirely new way of thinking about talent, doesn't it? Because from from we've all seen the kind of side hustle chat uh, uh, running alongside the work from anywhere post COVID piece, and and certainly the tech is transformative. I mean, even in our industry, if you look at the scale of the industry globally, it's about five hundred billion dollars. Uh, 15 billion of that is platform delivered at the moment, but that 15 billion is growing at 30% a year. So the change is coming and it's coming quickly. And I suppose when we think about that, it's an entirely different set of management skills to manage people for outcomes who are maybe working for you for half a week or for an hour or two rather than full time. It's an entirely different uh, approach for individual workers and the support that we'd need to offer them to trans to to, sur- to survive and thrive in that environment is very different. So this is a this is really a talent thinking revolution, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, it very much is. So you know, the, I think there's a huge difference between you know looking for talent to bring into one's business and looking for someone that you need to do a job. I think these are very different things. Mm-hmm. And, and just before I maybe kind of get into talking about some of these differences, if we, if we, see, if we look at the model that's, that we've traditionally used, if we just take, use the UK as an example, right? So the current model looks like this. We go off and an organisation pays someone for 12 months. 
But the reality is they're only in the business for 10 months. So what that means is that for every 100 people that we've got in the business, there's around 20 people not there. Mm-hmm. And this is before we begin to think about areas where it be like utilisation of productivity. And it's generally kind of accepted that if you're running at around 80% productivity, you're really at the high side. So therefore, if we've got these 10 and the 10 now becomes eight, you can kind of see straight away that there's something financially it doesn't kind of quite match up. Yeah. And and if we and if we and if you look at the model, what we've got is that we talk, I, I talk frequently, Neil, about splitting work into thirds. I've got kind of the third that maybe I shouldn't be doing. And if I shouldn't be doing it, who should be doing it? I then have the third, which is kind of my table stakes. This is why I'm at the table. And I've mm-hmm. got the third that makes a difference. Now, if we're just paid the same day rate, it means we're being paid the same money for doing something that we ought not to be doing. And when we do something which is exceptional, we get paid the same money again. I can't see how that can be beneficial to the individual who's delivering the, the work or the outcome and how it can be beneficial to the organisation. So we've got to be thinking differently in terms of moving towards this outcome-based method and rewarding people accordingly. And, 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 and as you mentioned, we've got the, um, the rapid rise around the, the gig economy. Um, I mean, this, this month also, there was um, some major problems. It's going to be an ongoing problem in India to do with moonlighting. Mm-hmm. We're essentially organisations who are employees of um, or, of um, organisations are going off and working for another organisation without telling their employer, which is obviously a major problem. But if we think about multi-portfolio working, which is here, and is it possible for us to have multi-portfolio working running simultaneously? where we can have people who are effectively working across more than one company at the same time without conflict of interest. And how does that begin to go off and change the financial modelling inside an organisation and the reward for the individual? And these are really big questions which require that kind of C-suite investor side to be thinking about the people thing. For This is where you and I got to talking first, which is I talk a lot about businesses needing to do the people stuff first because they're doing the technology uh, piece at the C-suite, thinking about platforms, thinking about how that's changing. And it's actually about how the two interact that leads you to a different set of questions that you want to uh that that you that that you want companies to be asking themselves about how do we deploy labor how do we uh, reward labor and i think really importantly reward labor well in line with the value that's being created because they're doing the third that is more valuable and then what is the role of the corporate center which might have more of an ongoing piece that's a set of skills that um, I, we've chatted in the past, Richard, and you know that one of my core beliefs is that uh, British business schools are not in a position to, uh, are not teaching that this kind of piece around the interaction of people and market and technological change well enough. There's, there's something here about a set of skills that clients will need to have to plan 
ahead and it's not just workforce planning in the classic sense of we're investing in this we're going to need that many people with, with this set of skills it's we're investing in this we're going to have to make the cost base flexible uh, to the to the the product market as it grows and contracts over time these are the skills we need and we're building it into jobs and we're offering that out to a statement of works style market to to grow so there's a big kind of piece there about how recruitment works in that world and let's let's not talk about agencies just yet but in terms of the business that's operating this in this world how would they then approach bringing that talent in? Because I notice you've already drawn a, a a contrast between jobs and job holders and talent more broadly. So, uh, so perhaps a good starting point is um, thinking about the individual, just for a second. And we, and and what's the individual's role in all of this? Obviously, right? Because they've got we've got to be thinking about how we can support and educate the individual more against the backdrop. Where over the last um, 10 years, we've seen a year on year decline on the investment in education. And I think in the UK now, I think it's down at below the £400 level per individual. So we've got this challenge about the investment into the people themselves and then looking at the organisation. And, and there's, a, there's just, just a couple of points here. There's, there, there's there's the two golden rules of life that um, I think it was Benjamin Franklin talks about, which is death and taxes. These Absolutely. are kind of yeah, two of the cards that are dealt us at the mm-hmm. very commencement of um, our life. But I think there's another card which is very, very relevant, which is about the de-employment. Mm-hmm. So if we think about the de-employment from someone or someone from the very first interview, how does that begin to get us to kind of shape a different way of working? So, so let me give you, let me try and give you a tangible example of this. Right? If you know, the bulk of what people do is very process-based activity, which we know can be automated, and I'm just going to go off and say that fifty percent of my, let's say fifty percent of my work is process-centric, and I'm employed by one organisation. Right. So now what we have is that we've got 50% of my work now being done by an individual, sorry, by a digital worker. Right. Now, the thing is, right, there's a few things here, is that surely the organisation would want me to be on board to try and help and support that programme of change. Mm-hmm. But if my job's going to be at risk, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? And that's why a lot of transformation programmes go off and fail is being able to carry the people on the journey. And this is particularly important at the minute when we see this massive increase in um, you know, digital transformation programmes. So if we think about the de-employment piece and bring it back linking in to the reward system for people, because the more we can push people towards the top end third, yeah. it means that the people are more engaged to get rid of the things that they don't want to do. That the organisation might not need them full time. And this goes off and plays much more into thinking about the development around shared workforces and how they operate and, and being able to kind of move the workforce away from this hourly day type model into outcome. Because we all want to have more flexibility, don't we? 
And, and flexible, you know, flexible working is not moving from five days a week to four or spending two days at home and three days in the office. There is nothing flexible about that. The only route to flexible working is for it to be outcome based. Mm-hmm. So the individuals need to try and understand what is their value proposition? How, what outcomes can I help the organisation to deliver? And vice versa from the organisation back to the individual. So there's there's a lot there, and I'm gonna just try and unpick a little bit. So some of it is about how we support individuals, and that's in the education system. It's in think places like job centres, but it's also in uh, in firms to understand that progression. And it will take time to to make. But there's also something there about you know managerial skills and how we sell the change. Uh, when you were talking about de-employment so the the loss of certain roles that people have or all of a role if uh, in the case of some of the tech examples you cited earlier there's something in that about not just acceptance but advocacy for the change and back when we started this podcast we had Rob McCargo who's a good friend of the REC at PwC on and he he has a great turn of phrase which is the robots aren't coming to steal their your jobs they're coming to take away all the boring bits of it now that might be a little bit optimistic from from where you are Richard but I think it gets to the heart of this issue which is that a lot of that process-based stuff is digital uh, is digital ready already you know um, and actually it's the advocacy and acceptance of uh, human beings for a di- doing a different type of work and we know this story um you know it's going quicker now but it's the story of uh the industrial revolution it's the story of the agricultural revolution it's the story of the first information revolution which is that these changes tend to be rather less existential about work than transitional and the real risk is that in the transitions, people fall off the right. So that that speaks to kind of the need to think about people up front in the in the process and and think about it in the planning stage of uh, workforce planning in the client, but also how we work with clients as recruiters to to bring talent on board. Which I suppose brings me to my last question, which is, you know, this podcast came out of an exchange between you and me on LinkedIn about the role of agencies going forward. And, you know, I think it was one of those ones where we we started out possibly disagreeing and ended up fiercely agreeing, which is that you know, there's a decent slug of the stuff which agencies do around fulfillment, which actually is it can be handed over to digital workers pretty swiftly. But actually, the the art and the added value here is is in the the shaping of the talent acquisition and the roles for the talent and those statements of work around outcomes that we're we're looking at. So, taking it right back to our first conversation, what does all this imply if you're listening to this? driving home from uh, the office in the car and you run a medium-sized specialist uh, recruitment agency, how does how does your business change and survive as this world, whether it takes five years, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years to reach 
full capacity at it as this world develops. What what are the takeaways that you'd like to give some of the listeners on that? I, I think the starting point would have to be to kind of split the um, the permanent recruitment requirement and the flexible recruitment requirement, i.e. the contractor side. So I think I would kind of go off and think about how those separate. And, and, the, and the reason why I go off and separate them is that when when we look at this deal that McKinsey talk around, right, which is linked into this future target operating model change, there's several very low-hanging fruit areas, basically, that you're able to think about going off and implementing um, as kind of proof of concepts. So an example would be is that if we think about in the contract marketplace at the moment, what someone's doing is going off and renting someone. So businesses which are rental focused will become much more automation driven. And we can see that beginning to go on with the platform involvement that we see in place at the moment. So so as a consequence of that, we've got to be thinking a lot more about the the value-added service that we're able to go off and provide, both to the individual as well as to the organisation in the, in the contract area, because our target operating model internally will be different. And, and as we're saying um, um, earlier, Neil, we're kind of saying that, um, look, you know, it's all well and good coming up with a statement of work, which has got KPIs and things in it as an example. But it's basically the outcomes is what we need to be able to go off and focus into. And how do we deliver those outcomes? And those outcomes will be delivered in a team orientated environment, which is global. It's no longer just going to be a case of someone saying, hey, I need Richard to go off and do something. Find me a Richard, please. Businesses are going to move in to recognise this outcomes that they want. So, so these, so the the agencies who are involved in the contract marketplace need to be thinking a lot more about the range of services and the collaborations that they need to go off and put into place, and understand much more about where they sit in the value chain as these organisations are trying to drive towards you, but know, your investors seeking more profit as an example. I have to come to the permanent side now. But I can, mm-hmm. um, so, so if I look at the if I look at the permanent end of the business, I think I think one of the when 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 we think about talent, right? So you know, so we've got this thing, isn't it, haven't we? Talent acquisition is the latest. It's a bit like for me, pay the personnel department became the HR department. Right? But when we when when I when we think about talent. Talent, I think, goes across a number of different areas in the future. It has to go beyond just in finding an employee, as an mm-hmm. example. Uh, you know, so hold on, I've got an employee I can go off and think about. I can think about a contractor that I might need in my business. I might think about a supplier, which has also got talent. I might think about the associates that I want to go off and work with in my business. And I might be thinking about what is the partnership? So talent acquisition, I've just rattled off five areas there as an example. We've got to think about talent differently mm-hmm. because this talent helps us regarding our value propositions. You know, there's a there's a there's a vast number of very, very successful recruitment organizations out there. 
who have got very good value propositions, which tend to be driven by the quality of the service yeah. in many instances. And as you would know, is that there's a very low cost of entry into the recruitment market, isn't it? Okay, what do I need? I need a desk, or maybe I don't need a desk, actually. I need a computer. So you've got this kind of very low cost bar. So we've got to think about the additional services that we need to wrap around the platform. We're in a platform age, software as a service. We need to be thinking about the services for software. And what does the customer want at the end of the day? If, I, if I'm the customer and I've got a requirement for someone, whether it be a permanent head or whether it not, have I got the skill sets to, first of all, what support might I need to be thinking about the outcome as opposed to the body? Mm-hmm. And, and if I need something, I, I, I need it today, don't I? Right? So therefore, this gets us into thinking about the pipeline of people and the sharing of workforces, because I don't want to wait two or three months for someone. And if I'm going to be looking at talent acquisition, talent acquisition isn't for me about someone giving me a CV. That's what I've, that's what I'm maybe expecting a job, isn't it? I've got applicant tracking systems. You know, I mean, you know, I'm going into one a little bit now, Neil. So forgive me, but <laughs> applicant tracking I'll, I'll systems. I'll allow you ATS. one. Yeah, thank you, please. I'm a hips fan after all. I, we, we don't have a lot to smile and be happy about at the moment. So this applicant, this, this applicant tracking system piece has got a huge benefit when it comes down to helping with jobs. But when it comes down to bringing talent into an organisation, it has a huge disadvantage because talent doesn't give you CVs. Talent gives you value propositions. You figure how, how, do, how do you bring talent into the business and how do you deploy it? How do you develop it? Yeah. At what point in time do you release it? So talent recruit talent is very different from the job piece. And I think that the people out there who are in this area, we need to think about these things differently to help the customer. You know, what does the customer want? The customer needs something. When I need something done, I want it done now. And it also takes me into the price point of doing things about how we do the work. Because all too frequently, and I, and I know we, we touched upon this also in our chat, you know, over the last 40 years, every single organisation I've ever gone to has always said they don't have enough resources. Now, what does that mean? What, what this means is that we're always going off and doing things which are urgent and things which are important. And when we look at the price point for doing things, just a simple little two-by-two two matrix, which I hope the listeners can um, visualise, mm-hmm. we've, got, we've got off location, so that's work from anywhere, and then we've got on location then we've got the proactive element and the reactive and what we spend a lot so the most expensive cost clearly is when it's reactive on location the lowest cost is when it's proactive off location and when we think about the work it comes through if we've got it's very difficult i've got work which is urgent i've got work which, which is important and it's very difficult to even distinguish between those two but then I've got the nice-to-do work, essentially. But this nice-to-do stuff will eventually become urgent and important. So what we're yeah. going to see, we're going to see the development here of if we think about in the context about an airline seat um, or a hotel room, 
where essentially what we see is that if we go off and book this hotel room, hotel bed, or we book this um, airline seat in advance, the price point is very different from when I need it urgently because it's important. I've got a different price point. So what we're going to now, these these organisations talk about dynamic pricing, but it's not dynamic pricing, it's utilisation-based pricing. So what we'll see in the emergence of, we're going to see the emergence of dynamic pricing coming into the labour marketplace because people are dynamic and we've got these ingredients. Mm. So so when we look at the work that we want to go off and do, there'll be a different price point for the nice-to-do work because we can do that more leisurely than the price point for doing something which is urgent or important. And this falls back into the resource piece that we went went off and touched upon at the very beginning, because the way the organisations are structured is that they pay for 12, only get 10, and we get an eight performance. So there's a lot in there. And that I want to pick up on, and I think we will return to this, Richard, over over time, possibly in future podcasts and other things that we do. But the challenge here, dynamic pricing is really interesting because I think we're already starting to see that emerge in the NHS simply because of the scale of the shortages. And of course, uh, the talent in the in the NHS ha- is very clearly signaled. They're registered nurses or they're qualified doctors. So the But that broader piece around how are we as an industry thinking about guiding clients through this world and that rather than the fulfillment being where the industry is creating value. I think that's right at the heart of the REC's conception of the development of the industry as well. And I think it's um, it's both a challenge and an opportunity. You know, the challenge there is, as you pointed out to me when we first sp- uh, uh, talked, I think the industry will need to change and step up to that in order to continue to grow and uh, and make a difference. The opportunity is, if not us, who? And so there's something there around an ongoing discussion about how over time we step into this interface between flexible workers working in technology dominated industries which is pretty much all of them going forward thinking about how we support the workers how we regulate that labor market for fairness you know the rec's advocacy role with government and how we help clients understand what they can have and what they can't have and as part of that help clients at the c-suite level educate investors on what's realistic and that profit expectation you started with and that's a lot to take away for today today and i think we'll return to this but richard if people want to find out a little bit more about you and the work that you're doing where should they look Oh, Richard on LinkedIn. That's a nice, easy one for all of your listeners, I would hope. Excellent. Richard Skellett, LinkedIn. Richard, thank you very much for that. Absolutely fantastic 45 minutes, probably the best 45 minutes any Hybe's had in the presence of a Hearts fan in the last uh, uh, five uh, five to ten years. delighted i wasn't gonna let you away with it delighted delighted to have you and i think we'll return to this um huge thanks for joining us on the rec podcast today it's a real pleasure thoroughly enjoyed it look forward to the next session neil thank you so much for the invite well thanks again to richard for joining us today 
And thank you to you for coming along and listening to this episode of uh, Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. If you've been taken by today's discussion, you'd like to dig in a little further on on some of the diverse issues that we take on on the podcast. The last episode was uh, somewhat uh, less crystal ball and more super practical. We were looking at holiday pay and agency temps with Paul Chamberlain. Really good and detailed discussion there of what agencies need to know. And uh, on on episode 19, perhaps a bit more about the future of the labour market, we were discussing inclusion and running inclusion through your recruitment process with BITC and ASDA. A couple of great episodes there to dig into. If you've got an appetite for a little bit more podcasting before you uh, draw stumps on it for the day but once again thank you for joining us on this episode of talking recruitment the rc podcast and i'll look forward to talking to you again soon thank you for listening and i hope you enjoyed this podcast join me for another episode soon and check out our back catalogue at rec.uk.com to catch up on some other fantastic discussions that are really helpful for recruiters you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. So subscribe to REC Podcasts to never miss an episode.